0: This morning, we have Stephen Ogden, uh, who's going to be talking about a contextualist look at skeptical theism. Um, but first, we'll have comments by uh, Amia Srinivasan. Uh, oh, and from Oxford and from the Uh
1: Great. OK, uh, well, first, thanks to Stephen for his paper. I, I knew absolutely nothing about skeptical theism before reading it, so learned a lot. Um, but I should just say, as a caveat, all my learning has been done on the basis of Stephen's paper alone, so I did, which isn't to sort of you know impugn Stephen's paper, but is to <laughs> impugn myself. And I didn't go and read sort of the, you know the surrounding literature. So if I um, express confusion about that, that that, that that's my failing. Uh, what I'm going to do today is make a series of kind of friendly suggestions. Um, a lot of these friendly suggestions are aimed at Weichstra and Rowe rather than at Stephen because I found the setup of the dialectic in play, quite confusing and, I dare say, confused. Um, So I'm going to go through what I found confusing about Roe and then Weikstra and then Roe again and then Weikstra and uh, offer a streamlined, I think, simpler kind of epistemological framework for thinking about this debate, Um, one that I think is friendly to... Stephen's contextualist <laughs> approach, and at the very end I'm going to say something about Stephen, what Stephen wants to say about the contextualist treatment of this debate, and I'm going to offer sort of three different readings of Stephen's response, a little Ogden exegesis, if you will, and, and then invite him to um, say which of, of these three, if any, he's, he wants to go for. Okay, uh, so first, the dialectic in brief is sort of we have Roe saying... Gratuitous suffering is incompatible with the existence of an omniscient, omnipotent, and holy good God, which we're going to call T. There exists gratuitous suffering, so there is no T. Wekstra responds to Rowe uh, You're not entitled to claim that there exists gratuitous suffering uh, because you don't know the falsity of the following skeptical hypothesis, ST, the hypothesis that there exists a T whose reasons are unfathomable to us. Right? And then Ogden, responds something along the lines of, although Weichstra's skeptical theist argument is structurally analogous to traditional Brain Navat skepticism, Roe cannot take refuge in a contextualist solution to skeptical theism. Right. Um, Okay, we're gonna talk more about, or I'm gonna talk more about what exactly uh, his argument is there. Okay, so next two. Rowe's arguments, just slightly modified to make it shorter. Uh, one, there exists gratuitous suffering. Two, a T would not permit gratuitous suffering. Three, therefore, there is no T. Okay. Now here, here's where um, I get struck and confused. Weichstra's skeptical theism response. So this is the original version of that response. So Rose says, oh, sorry, Weichstra says, Roe's argument relies on the inference that it appears that one, one being the first premise in the argument, so probably one. And Weikstra goes on to say that in so doing, Roe is employing a, quote, proper, indeed primary, indispensable principle of justification, which he calls the principle of credulity, PC, that appears in the epistemic sense that P, probably P. And Stephen gives a little gloss on this. He says, for example, when it appears to me there's a cup of coffee in front of me, then there probably is a cup of coffee in front of me. So I find this, you know, slightly opaque. Uh, I, I take it that what's going on here is that um, Whitechapel pressed Rowe on, you know, what justifies his his what entitles him to assume one, and Rowe said something like, "Well, it just appears that one." Um, but nonetheless, uh, there's no sense in which Rowe's argument can be said to rely on the inference it appears that one, so probably one. I mean, Rowe's argument doesn't say probably one; it just Says one, so it rests on one. Um, and Rose's assertion of one, if it's going to be felicitous, doesn't rely on it on any inference from it appears that one, so probably one. It just relies on something like you know Rose knowing one. So I so I think what's going on in this principle of incredulity thing, uh, since it's either sort of obviously false or trivially true if you replace appears with uh, probable in the evidence, is something like this: P C star. Um, if all things considered, it seems to S that P, then S is justified, perhaps feasibly justified, in believing that P. Okay. So then Weckstra introduces this further condition, which is cornea. On the basis of a cognized situation S, human H is entitled to claim it appears that P, only if it is reasonable for H to believe that, given her cognitive faculties and the uses she ma- has made of them, if P were not the case, S would likely be different than it is in some way discernible to her. Okay, so that's a lot right there. So let's gloss entitled to the claim that appears that P as just justified in believing that P on the basis of its seeming that P or appearing that P, not in just the perceptual sense, but in the sort of all things considered sense. Then cornea is this justification condition, uh, which is actually distinct from PC star, um, on beliefs formed in accordance with how things seem to one. In a nutshell, cornea just says... um, if your belief that p, on the basis of, or my reading, if uh, if you believe that if your belief that p, on the basis of it seeming to you that p, all things considered, is going to be justified, you've got to be in a position to reasonably believe that that belief is sensitive. Okay. Then Wextra goes on to say that Rose appears claim, that is somehow magically implicit in one, does not satisfy cornea. And Stephen glosses that as we simply cannot claim to have the appropriate epistemic access to the reasons T might have. Okay, so my gloss, simplifying glosses, Rose's belief that one does not satisfy cornea and so is unjustified. The problem with this is that just seems false to me Um, because, well, Rose's belief does pass cornea, right? It seems on the obvious way of evaluating that counterfactual. So if one were false, and there didn't exist instances of seemingly gratuitous suffering. Then, sure, surely Rowe wouldn't believe that there existed gratuitous suffering, right? Because in the closest world in which one is false, there's, there just aren't these gratuitous sufferings. There are no five-year-olds getting raped or deers, uh, you know, suffering in the woods all by themselves. I remember that. <laughs> um, so then, Roe's belief that one just does pass cornea. So compare, by the way, the, the brain and the bat dialectic. Um, my belief that I have hands passes cornea because, you know, my belief that I have hands is sensitive. If I didn't have hands, I, I, would, I would have been born without hands or they would have been cut off and I would have noticed. Okay. So for all of these reasons, I think we should just reformulate Weikster's argument. And this is friendly to Stephen because... Um, I'm going to do it in a way that's, that's knowledge-centric, unsurprisingly, uh, but not in a way that sort of begs questions. you know. Just, um, and so that's going to allow, allow a very simple kind of contextualist treatment of what's going on. So my proposal is we drop the talk of appears claims, probability, epistemic entitlement, cornea, all of these things, and just run it in terms of knowledge. So let skeptical theism be that thesis, there exists a T, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we have our sensitivity condition relativized to methods. And then when you have this argument four through eight, so the first is sensitivity condition, S knows that P only if S's belief that P is sensitive. Second is Rho's belief in not ST is insensitive. Six, Rho doesn't know not ST. Seven, if Rho doesn't know not ST, then Rho doesn't know one. Therefore, Rho doesn't know one. Okay, so this is, as Stephen points out, uh, this is is, uh, perfectly analogous to the traditional brain of bat argument. So that we've got that in premises 9 through 13. I'm not going to go over that since I'm sure you're all acquainted with that, <coughs> that argument. Uh, and then Roe has this kind of Morian response, um, which you can go through from 17 through 19. I mean, the original one is 14 through 16, but th- there's a problem with it. So let's go 17 through 19. Uh, we just reverse the premises If Roe doesn't know that not ST, then he can't know that one. Roe knows that one, therefore, Roe knows that not ST. Um, So here Stephen objects look, the perennial problem, however, is that the epistemic situation is exactly the same as if ST were true. Even if God were to exist, we shouldn't think God's reasons would be discernible. So in response to this, I would say, well, you know, but this. Yep, okay, let's assume atheism is is true. The epistemic situation would be really different if ST were true, right? Um, From the, from the, the way it actually is, leaving aside how we evaluate that exactly. So after all, there are all sorts of things that it would turn out Roe didn't know. Roe wouldn't know that ST was false, and he wouldn't know one. Uh, so to say that the epistemic situation is exactly the same is to just sort of beg the question against Rowe. Of course, for Rowe to insist that he does know one uh, and thus not as is to beg the question against the skeptical theist, but some questions deserve to be begged, possibly. Okay, so now we're, now we're at Stephen's uh, contextualist treatment. So the strong analogy between Weichster's argument, um, 4 through 8, and the traditional skeptical argument, 9 through 13, Threaten Weichser's argument with sort of guilt by association. Um, it also suggests that Rowe might be able to take refuge in a Keith Rose, KDR, style contextualist solution to the skeptical theist's challenge. Um, but so Stephen wants to argue that actually contextualism offers no safe harbor for Rowe. So uh, briefly and sort of inadequately, KDR's contextualist solution is something like the proposition picked out by knowledge attributions. Claims like, I know that P, um, change depending on context. Uh, in low standards context, the utterance expressed um, mm-hmm. expresses a proposition that the subject is in a good, is in a strong, uh, but not super strong relationship to the known proposition. Um, and in a high standards, I skeptical context, or actually, e.g. skeptical context, mm-hmm. um, the proposition expressed by that utterance uh, is, is much, indicates a much stronger relationship between the knower and the proposition,
2: known or not known,
1: or known, if it knows, um, namely a sensitive one. So in high standards context, I know I'm not a brain of that, and I know I have hands, express false propositions, but in low standards context, they express true propositions. And just briefly, this is supposed to solve the skeptical paradox in the sense that, it explains why in normal context we take ourselves to make true knowledge attributions while in skeptical context we take ourselves to make true knowledge denials. Right? And so what recommends contextualism is its putative ability to vindicate our everyday knowledge attributions. Um, so therefore, Rowe might hope that his assertion of one and his claims to know one could similarly by, be vindicated by a kind of a c- contextualist treatment. So I think Stephen has three different kinds of possible arguments going on. I mean, maybe more, but these are the ones I sort of see in play, and they're they're slightly different. So they're A through C. So the first one is no low standards, A. And so the argument is, in no context does row no one, quote, row no one, express a true proposition. This is because the skeptical theist hypothesis is so implicitly built into the theist hypothesis, such that any consideration of T whatsoever just raises the standards. Right? So even in the ordinary, even the ordinary context is a high standards context. So Roe never knew one. Or sorry. Roe knows one never expressed a true proposition. Uh, So B uh, is what I call no return to low standards. So although Roe knows one might have once expressed a true proposition, um, anyone, including Roe, who has been exposed to skeptical theism, that now includes all of you. Can no longer express a true proposition with that utterance. It's great, thanks a lot. Glad <laughs> <laughs> <Blame> to <Steven. laughs> So, in other words, it's impossible now that like, this thing has been raised to get down to sort of a low standards context um, yeah. <laughs> without sort of you know um, forgetting or amnesia or taking a drug or whatever.
3: You can try drinking a lot
1: tonight. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the third uh, uh, possible reading is C, and this has nothing to do with sensitivity, contextualism, whatever, it's just, and, and, and probably isn't what Stephen's saying about what I kind of think he should go for, is no safe belief. So Roe doesn't and never knew one, and this is because there is a nearby possible world um, whose suffering looks just like ours, in which ST is true and one, therefore false, and in one, and which Roe believes one. So this is where Stephen sort of talks about like how Actually, it's a pretty nearby world in which there is an inscrutable god. Right? Uh, this means that Rowe's belief that one violates the safety condition. Right? So it's not even about safety. It's just that I mean, it's not about sensitivity. It's just that he has a nearby false belief. right? Because in the very nearby world in which there's this inscrutable god, he believes that there is no inscrutable god. And he, and he continues to believe one, both of which are false. So he can't know even in the actual world. So which argument? Does or should Stephen go for? I don't know the answer to does, but so should. Yeah, a to me just seems implausible, and, but I don't have much more to say than that. But it also does stand in tension with Stephen's own assertion on page 13 that Rose's assertion of one seems both felicitous and true. Right? So I think that's like a pretty good observation, a pretty good intuition, and we don't want to get rid of that. Uh, but A would cost us that intuition. B might be more plausible than A, the no return to low standards, but I would have to have a much fuller story about context shifting uh, at play in this dialectic to understand why I should go for B, right? Um, Given the standard contextual treatment of traditional skepticism, the burden of proof lies with Stephen to explain to us why we can't easily downshift so that, quote, Ogden knows one, expresses the true proposition. Um, So C, I like because it moves away from sensitivity towards safety it's not a semantic thesis it's a thesis about knowledge um and and it, so you know so it doesn't generate these sort of skeptical results um, but is c plausible well it all hangs on this question about the closeness of the inscrutable uh, god world obviously if we have an under- metaphysical understanding of, of closeness of worlds um then then this isn't going to work because of the necessity of God's existing or the, or the necessity of God's not existing. Um, so here, 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 here are two alternative suggestions which are sort of in the sea ballpark but which don't take on that kind of baggage about possibility. One is dis- the first is disagreement defeat. So here's, here's a version of the argument. Roe doesn't know one because he has epistemic peers who disagree with him as to whether one peer disagreement defeats knowledge. Similar thing, safety defeat. Roe doesn't know one because the belief of theists in not one constitutes evidence that his belief, that one, is unsafe because you know he could easily have been that theist in some sense, and so he could have easily believed falsely. So both of these arguments work even on the assumption that atheism is true. Um, I think neither of those suggestions should be that tempting for theists because similar analogous arguments be run against theistic knowledge. Um, and here's where I'd need to know more about skeptical theism, because skeptical theism sounds maybe a bit like mm-hmm. agnosticism, in which case maybe you would want to go for one of these. Um, but the theist could always go for discrement defeat or safety defeat and just downgrade all the atheists. They're, they're, not, their, they're not the peers of theists. Um, sounds okay to me. Um, <laughs> or he could, of course, argue, the theist could, of course, argue that uh, the theist is, in fact, using a different method right, like something like Calvin's census divinitatis, to come to know, or to come to believe. And so that sort of renders the theistic belief safe. Um, so those are the options I think Stephen has on board. But he just told me he's going for an option D, so I can't hear, wait to hear what that is. <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right. Um, so thanks for having me here. This is a great honor for me. Um, thanks for your comments, Amia. Um They're helpful and generate, hopefully, a lot of good discussion. Um, So I should just say, I mean, the way the paper is set up, right? I'm not a committed contextualist. um, Neither am I a committed skeptical theist. Um, I'm just kind of interested in what happens when you put these things together. So um, uh, so I'm not really going to defend contextualism uh, much here. Um, Although I will say. Which is a very substantive point, but if, if you are a contextualist, then you've got this added bonus that you don't have to be called an encroacher, which kind of sounds a little unsavory, right? <laughs> um, so I doubt that will change anyone's opinion here, but, um, you know, that's, that's one thing contextualism that's might so have going on.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm just going to let that comment stand. Uh, so, um, so let me try, um, so there's a lot here. Uh, let me try to address the most substantive things first. Um, so um, thinking about EMEA's sort of um, fix for the Weikstra row setup, um, switching it to just straight claims about knowledge. I'm hesitant to do this, so may- I mean, um, maybe it is a good way to go. Um, I think I say in footnote 17 that, uh, that this whole thing could be done using straight knowledge claims. Uh, and I think, as has really just kind of worked out, um, the argument would probably go through even, um, even better on straight knowledge claims. Um, but that seems sort of unexciting. Because Roe himself never wanted to claim that he knew one. Um, He says that explicitly in his article. Um, He says something, actually, like, it would take something like omniscience to be able to claim to know that one. (laughs) Um, So to claim to know that one is sort of implausible. So if you show that he can't know the one, then um, this is, like, a very interesting result. Um, And uh, this is why he tries to give an inductive argument in the first place. So the reason why the probability stuff comes in with one is because he wants to say, look, there are many instances that sort of um, seem to appear this way, that there aren't any reasons, um, so probably there aren't any. Um, so he wants, to, he wants this argument to get its force from a kind of inductive inference. Um, so those are some reasons why I want to resist Um, switching everything to straight knowledge claims um, because uh, those claims just seem too strong, and so (coughs) they show that they can make those claims, and it's not that interesting. So I guess I'd rather say something um, interesting about skeptical theism using contextualism, um, even if it's sort of less clean, because I have to do this analogy stuff um, to talk about how they aren't using straight knowledge claims here, Um, so I'm kind of using... um, a, context, uh, a contextualist-inspired treatment, or something of warranted appears claims, or something like that. Um, so that's going to affect some of the other comments here. Um, still, I think uh, six raises um, Amia six here raises an important uh, an important issue, namely that um, I'm ambiguous about about. How the contextualist treatment applies to um, ordinary standards. So, Amia gives us. Uh, Amia gives us. Can I use this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have um, three options. Um, So A is no low standards. So there were just never any low standards to begin with. Um, so I, I don't think I want to claim this. Um, as I point out, it seems like one has this kind of intuitive appeal going for it at the beginning. Um, it seems sort of impossible to say this. Uh, so, and I also think that really would just sort of completely undermine a contextualist treatment of the problem, right? Um, if they're just no such thing as low standards, and it looks like we've got something going on here that's not contextualism, um, or something that contextualism couldn't really analyze for us anyways. Um, So B is, uh, no returns, this is like, you can't go home again, right? (laughs) Um, Say more about that in a second. to use a sort of safety approach that EMEA proposes. Um, I'm interested in this. Um, I, uh, I have a good friend at Yale who, um, who thinks that safety is actually the best way to go in thinking about skeptical theism. So I'm going to try to urge him to apply to the next workshop. Then. <laughs> um, and I, so I'm open to this working out. Um, but of course, then, that's um, that sort of gets us out of the realm of contextualism and into something else. So I'm not going to say much about that here. Um, but what I may opt for is uh, is D. Um, I'm just going to call it pesky skeptical theism. So so no return. Amia talks about this. Um, I think I I think I want to go for one of these two. Um, I'm not sure which, so maybe you can help me decide. Um, so B is actually closer to Weikstra's original argument, um, because Weikstra wants to say, after you've been made aware of how, um, how this claim doesn't meet cornea, then you can't sort of reasonably go back to asserting, um, you can't reasonably go back to asserting one. Um, so If we're trying to match the contextualist situation um, to Weigstra's original argument, um, then you might go for something like this, and and you might go for something like that on a contextualist reading, because look, um, what what the contextualist argument shows is that um, these high standards should get put in place just by talking about an omniscient god. Um, Mm -hmm. So we don't need any sort of new high-powered uh, hypothesis entering into the picture, so it 's not like i 've got to start talking about brains in a vat when you were talking about hands. Rowe comes on the scene talking about God, and I just try to make him pay attention to what he 's saying right um, so that 's one way a contextualist might try to motivate this no return option but even if you even if you think that maybe that 's too strong, so um, maybe something closer to the contextualist spirit is is this. Is this other option, so the pesky skeptical theist? Um, So, on this view, okay, maybe Roe can go back to claiming one and sort of low standards. But whenever he does that and he confronts a theist who's um, willing, or actually an atheist, who's willing to say skeptical theism looks like something, a plausible consideration, um, then it's going to raise the standards. And my claim in the paper is that um, skeptical theism uh, sort of is able to raise those standards more easily and more frequently than standard skepticism uh, can. Um, And I try to motivate that in various ways in the paper, but it just does seem to me that there are going to be more theists and atheists who think um, this is a relevant kind of thing to consider when we're talking about arguments for and against God's existence than... um, than, uh, sort of serious um, people seriously raising brain of bat type scenarios. Um, so, uh, I think I want to go with one of these two, two options, but maybe you can help me say which one. Am I at time? Mm-hmm.
5: No? Okay, um, I'll just leave it there.
0: Okay, so if you would keep your hand up until I make eye contact, and we'll do one finger for follow up, Sandy.
5: Um, so, so thank you for that talk. One. I have several questions, but I'll restrict myself to the the first one. Can you tell me why um, Roe thinks that knowing one requires omniscience? Um,
3: Probably not. I mean, (laughs) I can tell you that he thinks that, or that he said it, anyways. Maybe it's, maybe it's like too strong a claim or something, but I mean, for reasons Amia raises, I mean, I think it's pretty plausible to say, yeah, I mean, Roe couldn't know something like one. But I mean, do you find knowing one
5: plausible? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I guess, I, I see why people might worry about it, but every time I think about why one would worry about it, one worries about it because one has a false view of what knowledge it requires.
1: And nothing I said implied anything else.
5: Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I took yeah. that. S- I mean, so um, <coughs>
3: <That was possible. laughs> So again, so um, one might be sort of formulated in different ways. But let's just say um, you've got something going on about um, God not having morally sufficient reasons for the instances of suffering that we do see, right? Um, so that's the, that's the sort of thing that gives rise to the worry. And so you might have contextualist worries about it. You might have safety worries about it. Um, but, uh, but it does like, look like there are a number of ways to try to undermine that kind of knowledge because it looks like there are going to be some nearby worlds in which there is a God because of his omniscience whose reasons are going to be inscrutable to beings like us and in which um, we would still maybe have this belief. And so um, on On uh, most safety or sort of sensitivity sort of accounts of knowledge, you're gonna, you're, you might run into
5: problems. Can here. I follow up on that? Because I thought Amir made a point that I thought is right. And I, I take it you just denied that point. So I just want to see if, if, if I understood the dialectic here. If you think that God's existence, if God exists, is necessary, then there's no nearby world in which um, that the God's existence is opposite what it is in the actual world. So what you just said is false, and I thought I thought Amia made that point.
3: Yeah, so I, I try to go about this without taking into consideration arguments that God's a necessary being and exists in every in every possible world because um, in some ways that muddies the water, in some ways it makes it just sort of too
5: easy for the theist, I think. But, even if you oh. give that up, though, sorry. No, even if you give that up, I, I would be surprised if... Um, so, if the the world is one in which God exists, and then there's a nearby world in which God doesn't exist, that would still be surprising to me, even if you give up the thesis that God is, in, is God's existence is necessary. Just, just, I'm intuition mongering here, but I'm willing to bet that many people will be on my side on this one.
3: Um, well, so. Uh... Yeah, so, what, so you think, um, let's say in the actual world God exists, so um, the
5: worlds in which God doesn't exist are just really far away or well, something? Well, think about it matters. this way, just, and this is the last point I'll make, because I actually did mean to be succinct here. Um, <laughs> think about it, suppose I were to say to you, ima- there, imagine a world in which this law of physics um, doesn't hold. And then I say, oh yeah, that's a nearby world. Right. My first reaction is, well, y- you have a different understanding of what nearby world means than I do. So God's existence, I'm assuming nothing more than this. God's existence, if it's—if God does exist, that's a really, really deep fact about our actual world. Even if it's not, uh, you know, a, if it's not necessary, it's still a deep fact about our world. In which case, yes, the nearest I mean,
3: world, which... Th- sort of not easily changed, right? Yeah. Just a thought. Um, yeah, I should think about that more. I mean, maybe, uh, yeah.
4: Danny, was that a
6: follow-up?
4: Yeah. I think it helps if you think about the basis on which you, the method on which you come to form the belief in one. And then you could start thinking of cases. You know, depending on how you came to that, it could be uh, cases where they're close to where that is. False.
0: We falsely believe a different proposition. Sorry, not with that. We possibly believe all different other
5: propositions falsely, and then your beliefs will say, you can think of cases where the, the method that
0: you use are such that all the post rules are are ones where that method is safe. So <coughs> I think you've got to just start, you know, uh, making
4: more about the method you use. So that's one way to get clear on that. And Tim, your follow-up. Yeah, I,
0: I think it's along similar lines. But if you, if you think that nearness is a sort of contextually flexible type thing. Then I think in this case you're wanting to think of something like evidential nearness,
6: mm-hmm.
0: not so much nearness with respect to the laws or the, the,
3: yeah, you know, so uh, of God, and so.
7: right? <clears> On <throat> a sort of epi- yeah, evidential or
3: epistemic way of ranking the world, um, it's you know, so look, yeah, it seems like you've got to change a whole whole lot. Like God exists, like that's a pretty huge metaphysical fact about the world, right? It affects a lot of things, but um uh, Maybe the sort of evidence for or against God's existence. I mean, because it's yeah. Thanks.
8: Okay, Jeremy.
2: So it sounds like the the, the contextual kind of argument for well, using contextual. to give you it seems to be a different kind of skeptical theism than the kind that White. Sh- Is going for because on Weikstra's version, um, we're going to not get act, we're not going to be entitled to the appears claim, and so we're not going to get entitled to there probably is gratuitous suffering. But I think on standard contextualist lines, especially the kind that it looks like you're using, which is um, that the standards change, I think they usually leave strength of justification intact. So DeRose, I think DeRose thinks that um, after the standards go up, um, you, but after the skeptic drives up the standards, your strength of justification for here's a hand remains pretty high, it's still very high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think your degree of belief should remain as high, right? I mean, things, um, right in, the, in the high stakes cases, you know, believe, while, while believing just as strongly as I did before that the bank is open, um, but um, so, at the if that's the the mechanism you're using, I think you're going to end up leaving the atheist with very high credence that um, uh, that there exists uh, in, in the proposition that there exists gratuitous suffering, and so it's going to be very probable for the atheist that there will be no god. So you're going to leave them lots of. Um, you're going to leave them with that epistemic status in, in these propositions, but I think Weichstra's version doesn't leave them with. So I wonder if that's kind of a problem. That's it's, it's much weaker. It seems a much weaker kind of skeptical view.
3: Yeah. No. Um, that's that's good. That's helpful. Um, I hadn't thought about that. That um, standard contextualism does leave your justification for these ordinary beliefs normally quite high still. Um, uh, so in one way, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I'm, in one way, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to a weaker kind of skeptical theism um, uh, that's not quite so bold. So um, I might be willing to sort of just go with the contextualist flow on this one. Um, uh, but I have to think about that more. Um, and, and another possibility that opens up is, look, there may be other ways to mount evidential problems of evil. Um, or evidential arguments from the problem of evil. Um, and uh, a lot of people are still doing that sort of thing. And, and I want to say, yeah, that's still a worthwhile endeavor. Um, I don't think I don't think skeptical theism, as much as sure maybe originally meant it to be this, I, but I don't think it should be the sort of thing that just really cuts off the future debate. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess uh, that's a really helpful... Um, insight into what contextualism sort of applies about
7: sceptical theism, but I I think I'm sympathetic to it. Yeah, thanks. Okay, Max. So, just like understand the first bit, so you want to say um, if the atheist is in the high standards context, um, his evidence, namely the evidence of the world looking the way it does, like he can't see any outweighing goods, like the world still looks that way to him, even in the the world where atheism is false mm-hmm. so his, his evidence is insensitive he doesn't get to have that he's not entitled in the high standards context so but my question is like is the theist any better off in the high standards context where sensitivity is required because like say that the closest not theistic world in this context is not an atheistic world but a world where there's a powerful deity who's just kind of indifferent and sort of still makes a world that looks like this. And then in that case, if that's correct, then the theist's evidence is insensitive in the high standards context and the theist doesn't get to know either. Like So the atheist and the theist are kind of on the par.
3: Okay, so the the closest possible not T world is a world in which... There is a there is a very strong deity, but who's not morally good or perfectly good or something? Yeah, you know? I mean,
7: or just where his attributes are not quite the same as what fit on the on theism in some way. But you you
3: did mention that the that this god is indifferent to the suffering. Well, well say
7: so, sorry, that's one way you could vary. I mean, it's it's a world where theism is false, but the world looks mostly the same as it does.
3: Right, and so, um, so one thing to say about this, um, so there are a lot of worries that skeptical theism proves too much. Um, so, there are some theists who are who worry about skeptical theism, um, and uh, I say more about this in a longer version of the paper. Um, I think it's worth thinking through these problems. Um, but one thing you might say is, um, well, look. Um, theism isn't, tr- you might just go for the route that says theism isn't trying to argue for God's existence um, on the basis of this sort of um, appears type claim. You might think um, a theist holds the views that they do on the basis of other kinds of evidence. And so, um, so again, just like, just like there may be other routes to argue for atheism, um, even considering the problem of evil or something, there are going to be other routes to argue for theism, um, even if uh, this, this type of argument wouldn't work for a theist.
2: Okay, John?
4: This mm-hmm. kind of connects to something Amir said, but I mean, the way you're spinning contextualism is using this DeRose idea of a rule of sensitivity, where at a context, if you Say that you know P, the standards shift so that uh, P is required to be sensitive. That's the idea, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's, just, like it's got no plausibility at all. That rule. I mean, if I say, you know, Jeff's not about to drop dead in the next five minutes, or Jeff's not about to turn into a candlestick. I mean, on standard semantics of counterfactuals, kind of you know, if you look at the case where that's false, you hold the... P past fixed, and I will believe that it won't be sensitive, but no one thinks, you know, the standards are, I mean, it's it's just got no plausibility at all, this rule of sensitivity.
3: Yeah, so, um,
4: so let me, let me try to, um... I mean, I could give, I could give millions of other styles of examples, but I thought I'd
3: just give you one. So again, um... You know, maybe you just don't like contextualism. No, no, so I like,
4: I, I mean, contextualism <laughs> is a lot better. I'm just saying the rule of sensitivity is ridiculous, whether or not it's Okay, yeah,
3: so, so the rule of sensitivity is supposed to tell us something about what's happening in these, um, in these skeptical debates, right? So you've got to have a skeptical hypothesis in place, right? Um,
4: well, isn't that a skeptical hypothesis that he'll turn into a candlestick in the next five minutes?
1: Not according to Therese's.
4: Uh, is that not sceptical enough for it? <laughs> DeRose De
1: thinks a sceptical hypothesis is one that's going to ex- like explain, which I know is a word. Yeah, no, yes. like, oh, i so okay, going to so explain it's very, why you've so. so he's he's, gotta, be he's like, got a general picture, which is that
4: yeah. the the, the, context, just, the general picture is the rule of sensitivity. At a context, if you assert, then the standards are raised so that, I mean, that that that's the of get bumped of the up. View. No, no.
1: Only the, the rule of sensitivity only comes into play in a high standards context, and the high standards t- context is I mean, I'll just you, three, you get right. Ra- yeah, no, no, I'm not talking about... You know, I mean, what DeRose says is that, like, you get bumped up into the high standards context because of a sceptical hypothesis, and a sceptical hypothesis is something that explains why you used to take yourself to believe you're not. The sceptical hypothesis is false. No. Yeah, no, so, no, that, so, the so the... mechanics the mechanics... I agree, it's still bad. The
4: mechanics of DeRose's view is, at context where you assert that you know P, for any P, the standards are shifted so that... Uh, so that P is required to be set. That is, I mean... That is the rule he goes for. I mean, so there's a textual thing. I, I believe that so that's now, the rule he goes for. So I mean, um, maybe you could correct me on so that. So now we're getting into uh, DeRot's exegesis. Um, but
3: I, I think what he wants to say is that um, it's the skeptical hypothesis that is the standards-raising maneuver. Um, the rule of sensitivity is just explaining why that maneuver has force, because um, the hypothesis forces... Um, forces our belief uh, uh, to these remote possibilities um, in such a way that it becomes insensitive. So, because, look, he can't just think any time you say, I know that P,
4: I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't think there's a sensitivity condition for knowledge. I know that, right? but, no, but that's not the idea. The, the, the idea is at context where you assert, I know that P, at those contexts, the standards are raised such that P is required to be sensitive. I mean, I can read out the fact that that is that is the idea. That's how it, that's, that's how the, that's the mechanics of his view. That doesn't entail that at all contexts. No, that doesn't entail that the rule of sensitivity is true at any context. That's the point. Um, When it is asserted that some subject knows some proposition P, the standards for knowledge tend to be raised, if need be, to such a level as to require S's belief in that particular P to be sensitive for it to be counted as knowledge. So at at context where you go ahead and assert, I know yada, yada, the standards are thereby, thereby tend to be raised such that yada, yada has to be your belief in yada yada has to be a sensitive belief that's the mechanics of the view and all i'm saying is it's got no plausibility at all that view
3: yeah so um yeah i guess what i'll say is um i think derose probably should say something like what uh, i just said and amia just said which yeah. is it's the skeptical hypothesis that puts in place the high standards um, and the rule of sensitivity is just giving us an analysis of how that goes, um, because he, and he also wants to say other things too, like um, the the insensitive um, proposition believed has to be able to, to explain why our knowledge in these other facts is undermined in a certain sort of relevant way. Um, so that's one way he tries to get around other problems for sensitivity. But I
8: mean,
4: are that. Yeah, you see what, I mean, when you say the rule of sensitivity explains, I'd like you to write down, that if this, isn't the, this, if this is not the rule of sensitivity, it's false, and so it, it doesn't explain anything. So I'd like to know what the rule of sensitivity is, if it's not this proposition. Uh, something like when... Um, Which, but maybe there's some more, yeah. But something a, like when a
3: sceptical hypothesis puts in place high standards, um, then... Uh, it demands of the speaker that um, his or her uh, belief that P uh, be sensitive.
4: Right, but then, then it's not the rule of sensitivity explaining how the sceptic hypothesis puts in high standards anymore on that formulation. I mean, the, the, it, the way it was originally presented in DeRose is the idea is there's this rule of sensitivity and that explains how high standards come into effect. When you, the way you're glossing it now you're dropping that as an explanation of how you're you're basically talking about the requirement of sensitivity as a consequence of the high standards rather than an explanation of how the high standards come, so I'm not trying to be super anti-contextualist, I'm just pointing out that uh, you've chosen the wrong friend I'll go tell Keith you said that I think Keith knows (laughs)
3: yeah no no that's right that's right um yeah i should think more about this oh
8: yeah
6: so like on a similar thing like there are like a lot of reasons to think that especially this way of formulating contextualism you get a lot, lot of junk in so if you so the way that this rule works is that, so as John says, if you say S knows that p, then there's sensitivity rules that like expands this the sphere of worlds that counts as like the ones you have to satisfy to be safe, it's like a safe sensitivity thing. And so there's a worry with like ordinary conversational context where someone says like, well, I don't know whether the speed of light is three hundred and thousand miles per second or like kilometers per second. But I do know that that's a zebra or something like that, because, you know, if you have the rule of sensitivity like that, then by just mentioning the knowledge thing with the speed of light, you go to the nearest world where the speed of light is not what the speed of light is. And so suddenly you don't know the, the zebra thing. Anymore.
3: Yeah, so that's the thing that the explanation rule is supposed to rule out. So you don't, you don't generate a skeptical problem just by sort of positing any old sen- insensitive uh, uh, proposition, right? Um, so he wants to say there's got to be this kind of relevant connection between the t- between the things that you're supposed to know or not know. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, but it just seems to me like, yeah, if if that's like, DeRose just needs to rewrite this somehow because um, he he just can't think that any time you say I know that P, you demand that the you demand that Sensitivity is required, um, because he doesn't want sensitivity to be a constitutive rule of what knowledge is. Can Matt, I just
8: jump in on this. Yeah. so um, I feel like there's the, even in this quote there's this important thing that DeRose says about where the p involved is to the effect that a skeptical hypothesis does not obtain. Right. Then this rule just dictates the standards we raise, and so he has this. He goes on about it in other places about how this. You have to have the skeptical hypothesis be properly chosen. Only, right. only the right kinds of hypotheses are the ones that are going to be so intractable for us in that even in those worlds, we continue to believe that hypothesis even though, or we believe, continue to believe that the hypothesis is false. So it's not just like any assertion of analog attribution does it. It has to be one where the P that's attributed to be known
4: is one where it has this effect on... That's, that's, that's not what this paragraph says. What the parag- Let's read the paragraph. The, the paragraph says the rule holds in general. And then it goes on to say, and by the way, when the P is a sceptical thing, thing, the effect of the rule... Yeah. I grant you that. He, yeah. should, he should have this... this, this it's not a qualification it. to the rule. Yeah. It's, it's an upshot. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the, you can the, see what when he's actually... When sceptical, need. yeah. he, he needs to have had
6: that other line before it, before he introduced the rule. Right.
4: That's right. Yeah. So then we yeah that, that that that's all. <laughs> then we can yeah then we can look at new rules. Yeah. I just want to say this rule. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All
8: uh, right.
9: Here in front. Okay. So on any construal of your argument, you need there to be a nearby world in which there is a T that has some unfathomable reason R to permit the evil that uh, persists in the actual world. Uh, but. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by unfathomable reason? Is it that God himself would be unable to tell us? If God told us, are, unfathomable reason, are, we could understand? And then if that's the direction you want to go, then doesn't that seem not to be in keeping with God's omnipotence? Because surely if God were all powerful, he'd be able to give a paraphrase of his unfathomable reason? Or do you want to say that it's based on the evidence we have available that we're unable to come to learn, are, and which, in that case, you'd need to say that there's a second, unfathomable reason R, two, such that God is a good reason not to provide us with evidence to know R. Yes. Sir. I, I, just I'm not clear like why the atheists should permit that there being a nearby world in which T has this unfathomable reason R is even a live possibility. Like you know, the, the, what if they say you know give me some positive grounds on which to believe this is a metaphysical. Metaphysically impossible world yeah so um, the
3: indiscernibility here in, in question is some. It's closer to the latter thing you said so it's just um, given our given our current status as creatures like we are and um, the world the way it is um, we're not going to be able to see all the reasons um, why these things are permitted um, I don't think I don't think the skeptical theist should needs to take any sort of stand on um, I mean, surely it probably is possible for God to zap us with the explanation, right? And then, um, presumably, we would know. Or, um, or at least we could start to know, we could start to approach knowledge more than we're, than we're currently in. And you might want to say, I mean, that raises a good um, issue with skeptical theism. That, I mean, um, you might want to say something like, well, look, we, we do know some of the reasons. Um, God presumably has for permitting instances of evil. Um, maybe some of them have to do with the laws of nature, or maybe some of them have to do with um, certain people spending eternal life with with God or something like that. Um, but that's that's still not the kind of that's still not the kind of knowledge we need because we need to know not only what the goods in question are, but um, their conditions for realizability and that kind of thing. Um, so. Those are all those. That's the kind of like substantive knowledge that we just that we don't have. Um.
9: Okay, so you're just sort of guessing that it's metaphysically possible because you can imagine, you know, like suppose you know I, I hit someone in this room. It seems that there's no nearby world in which I could provide a reason for my action that's consistent with my pacifism, right? So it, it seems that you can talk about there not being a nearby world in which someone can give a reason that's consistent with their benevolence. Say. So, like, why is the, uh, I guess, why is the theist confident that there is a nearby world in which God does have this reason R that we can't come to know based on our evidence that is consistent with his attributes as T?
3: Well, so the theist is going to be confident of that for a number of other reasons, right? Um, but all the skeptical theist is saying is, um, look, we we don't have any good reason to think that um, it's likely that if God were to exist and had reasons that we would be able to discern them. So uh, I think skeptical theism in its most plausible forms shouldn't make any really strong sorts of claims like if God exists then it's really likely that we wouldn't be able to discern God's reasons or something like that. Um, So uh, the reason that theists are confident that God would have such a reason is sort of different from skeptical theism, right? Um, so, but look on the metaphysical possibility. Um, so, it seems plausible to me. to think uh, an omniscient being could sort of zap us with the explanation needed, um, and just sort of give us a kind of. Um, so, may, I mean, at least for any particular instance of evil, maybe God could show us exactly what was going on and explain this, uh, explain the thing, or. Look, if you think that's not going to be metaphysically possible, um, then that's not a problem for omniscience. So, so if God can't do something impossible, that's not a limit to his power. Um, so I don't think there's a problem either way.
7: Okay, we have two follow-ups. Christina?
10: Yeah. <clears throat> so actually, Wexter's not going to go with the answer that you gave first. He is going to say that God's reasons are unfathomable in a way that like, he, God couldn't just zap them into our heads. And that's kind of the whole point of talking about how, the, like, the, the baby. Because you right? sort of emphasizes
3: the, the fact that we're creatures. Well, yeah, sure, not. right?
10: Like, there's no way that a parent can explain to a baby who's being immunized how good this really is for them long term. There's just, uh, there's but no... The there's
3: there's but all presumably all that's things. because the parents not are... Not even if you're omnipotent,
10: because it's logically, I mean like, sort of, like, you know, metaphysically impossible for a being like that to understand the sort of, you know... Their own flourishing, they just don't have the capacity in the right kind of way. So is really going to push that point, and he's drawing on like, so a I mean, long tradition there, right, of unfathomability.
3: Yeah, so, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what Weikster thinks. You would know better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to him um, talk about this for a long time now. Um,
10: so, I mean, whether or not you find it plausible, I mean, at least is going to go yeah. for hard line unfathomability. And there's no world in which God could zap. His, you know, necessarily so I, like presumably, Reich just then has to translated. say, Well,
3: look, that's no limit on omnipotence,
10: right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the deal, but you can't uh, do something that's not possible. You don't have like the volitionist view of like God's omnipotence,
3: yeah. I mean, there might be some worries that you would have about that as a theist, but because um, you might, not you not might,
10: he's a possibility, yeah. Um, John, thanks. You um, have,
11: follow have or? a follow up, oh, sorry, uh, okay. Uh,
0: um, then Josh.
11: Yeah, so I was going to suggest another way of shifting the standards such that the atheist is the one who puts herself in high standards by making a problem of evil. So she can say there's gratuitous evils just so long as she doesn't infer from that that there's no God. And the reason why I was thinking that that might work is that it seems like if you can infer from the gratuitousness of the evil that there is no God, it seems like you're saying something... You're using gratuitous in a, maybe a technical way, kind of like if I was to give the weight of this table in nanograms or whatever, it might kind of... or, or sort of infer... Um, well, It seems to me like she, she's saying something like it's sort of ultimately gratuitous if she's, if she's going to um, use gratuitous in the... Um, like premise one of her argument. So I was thinking, take a take a c- comparable person who says, yeah, um, there's order and design in the universe, right? If someone can kind of like say that in a sort of really casual way, they can talk about how, um, you know, oh, oh, look, the sun is setting or something like that. But if they're going to use that in an argument for like a Ptolemaic you know, theory of, of the world, then Immediately, the standards, they're, they're now not just making a casual observation, they're making a scientific kind of observation. So, you know, just what do you mean, like, are, just what do you mean by order and design and or just what do you mean by the sun is setting um, becomes like like uh, it's almost a skeptical hypothesis that they were kind of begging upon themselves by using yeah, there's gratuitous evil, which is kind of like a mundane observation in a really technical way, like to prove something about metaphysics. And so if that was the mechanism, if the, if the mechanism for raising the standards wasn't like nearby world or anything like that, it was, if it was just the technicality of um, the language that the skeptic, sorry, the atheist herself was using, then that would maybe, um, at least that might be a way of, Maybe plugging for A or B or something like
8: that
3: yeah um, I guess I mean this sounds to me akin to sort of a peter unger hard ass semantics <laughs> as uh, as it's sometimes called, so um, i 'm not sure i'm not sure I would um want to go that way, that um, just by, I mean, I'm not sure I would, I mean, maybe you're just, maybe you're just sort of cashing out the, my argument in a, in a different sort of way. Um, but if, if you mean something like, well, anytime you use some term in a, in a fairly technical way or something, then you're committing yourself to um, these potential skeptical Scenarios. I'm not sure I would want to go with that, but I mean, I think um, the the ST argument is trying to show, or at least on a contextualist treatment, the ST argument is trying to show something like um, when you're using this, when you're using, when you're saying gratuitous, or when you're saying there's no reason, um, it does look like uh, you're making a pretty um, bold claim and um, one that's um, insensitive so I don't know I'd, I'd have to I'd have to hear more about the proposal to know why just sort of technical use of terms would automatically commit these kinds of.
11: Can someone correct me if I'm wrong but wouldn't it raise the standards if I was, so let's say I was to say this table is about 55 kilograms right and that, I might be entitled to know that um, on the basis of, yeah, I'm pretty good judge of what tables weigh. But if I give the weight of the table in nanograms, doesn't that, isn't that kind of, because I'm, I'm applying a degree of precision that, um, you know, doesn't that raise the standards uh, on the... You
4: mean if you say plus or minus 10 million nanograms?
11: Well, yeah, or if I was to give it without saying plus or minus, if I was to give like a, a nanogram weight of this table just looking at it and just yeah this is the nanogram like it's like this many nanograms exactly um, so something like that if I was to give the weight in nanograms and not say about I was to well, just then you, it's the a nanogram. different proposition then right. I mean. okay but so then that's what I'm saying is that then there's an easily known proposition there's gratuitous suffering and then there's a harder to know proposition there's ul- there's ultimately gratuitous suffering and if you need the you need the harder to know proposition you need the there's ultimately gratuitous suffering to get um Roe's argument right
4: don't, don't oh okay sorry uh, right. I, I,
11: i'm asking because <laughs> yes. i'm not sure what the how the contextualists do those moves but i'm thinking that that's the kind of move that might.
3: so you have in mind like the a kind of um, mundane claim there's gratuitous suffering meaning something like there's really bad suffering there's
11: suffering that no one could justify, where no one quantifies over everyone that I can, I'm thinking of at the time, like all the people I've met, a lot of people that I can expect to meet, and stuff like that. But that doesn't quantify, I'm not including when I say there's gratuitous suffering in a normal context. Um, you know, God. I wasn't thinking about God at the time.
3: So, so, you, so the thought is, as soon as you introduce gratuitous into this argument about theism, um, So that's, yeah, that's another way of kind of saying what I've said. That Like, when you sort of, God will bring in these high standards, at least once you're drawn, at least once your attention is drawn to um, the kind of being God is in in this sort of way. Um, So, yeah, maybe once you bring, if that, yeah, maybe once you bring in gratuitous with God, um, all of a sudden you start quantifying over different kinds of beings and it becomes harder thing for you to, to justify or to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Michael, you have a follow-up? Yeah, it, it might be just the same same suggestion, but it did, did seem like that's what you ought to say about the A, B, C, D uh, option. You, it, m- maybe it's E, because I'm not sure if it's up there, but you, know, you can return to the low standards. What you can't do is use the gratuitous suffering claim, you know, you ought to say anyway, uh, uh, in the context of an argument against God's existence, because it's the raising the possibility of God's, or mentioning God's existence uh, puts you in the situation where there's, you got to go out to those worlds where God exists, and can you really say that it's, uh, uh, that there, can you rule out the skeptical, you know, uh, possibility that it's merely apparent, gratuitous uh, suffering, that, you know. That's it. So it's basically, you can go
3: back to saying something like, Yeah. Um, Yeah, you can say, yeah, Bambi's suffering is is
0: This is a gratuitous evil, but then as soon as you start (coughs) to use it as an argument for God's existence, the standards go up, and you've got to deal with the skeptical theist's claims, and you can't, all of a sudden, then you don't know it. Yeah, maybe
12: that's that's right. (coughs) Okay,
0: Julian?
12: Uh, Yeah, so... uh, uh, I wanted to come back, I mean just mentioned all this stuff on closeness this, this idea that skeptical scenarios uh, raise standards because they bring in relevant distant possible words and it seems to me that there's a funny problem with that if you, it looks like if you stop speaking of brain in a vats, you on the standard story you raise standoffs uh, but if you happen to be a brain in a vats, then, you know, the brain of that word is not in any way distant. But still, I guess there is the feeling that if a brain of that starts to talk about brain of that, then they are using the word no with a high standard context. So it looks like the, the, the context is not really, like, I mean, on the plausible version of contextualism, it's not going to be a function of the uh, real distance, so to speak, between, the actual word and the scenario taken seriously, but more of the perceived distance between <coughs> the, what the, the speakers take to be actual and the scenario in question, while the, the strengths of epistemic position will maybe be more a function of the actual distance. So I think this idea, I mean, it, there are some problems here. That yeah,
3: so, um, so, yeah, good. I think, uh, the possible worlds talk is just brought in to, to sort of help um, make the notion of epi- strength of epistemic position more clear. Um, so um, the ordering of worlds here in terms of proximity I think has to be something like evidential or, I mean you said perceptual I think, um, but it has to be something like evidential or epistemological. Well the strengths of epistemic position. Mean, So you you can't, I mean, you can't start thinking about ranking worlds as if um, any world you think of, oh, let me apply the actual operator to that one, and then, okay, well, then, of course, those kinds of worlds are going to be close to that kind of world. Um, So it's just, we rank worlds based on, um, you know, some sort of evidence for how we think the actual world is, and then we tweak things about the actual world to get farther and farther away. Um,
12: who is we here? I mean, in this kind of context, like, we could be the subjects, the theorists who are speaking about subject, the speakers, I'm not clear, like, who is we. Like, the standard view is when the strength of a position is determined by the situation where the subjects happen. So, if you happen to be in a fake bound country, no matter what your evidence is, your strength of evidence is low, that there is bound from view. If you're in a good bound country, then your strength of evidence is high. This is supposed to be so there is supposed to be this objective measure of closeness, and depending on the subject situation, they will be higher or lower. What I'm pointing out is like it looks like the standards, so not the strengths of the position, but the standards set up by a context is uh, is not a matter of how distant the skeptical scenarios actually are from the speakers, but rather of something like how distant the speakers take these scenarios to be. So, speakers, maybe they are brain-bad, maybe they aren't, they think that this scenario is distant, and so when they take this scenario seriously, it raises their standard. So, it looks like maybe yeah, yeah. contextual standards are a function of you know, speakers' intention, perceived distance, and stuff like that. Uh, but, st- strengths of epistemic position, I took it to be on the standard view, something that's more like a matter of subject uh, situation, how is the subject in the situation close to where or, or
6: not? John? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no.
4: Okay. I, no I, I was going to say something about Michael's
3: thing, but if you, if you had something to add, oh, I'll oh, wait. Uh, yeah, so... Um, so I'm wondering, like, what the...
12: Oh, what I show you? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think that, like sometimes you switch you say like you, you want to, maybe it's, help, like, maybe it's something you use positively but when you want to say like mm-hmm. we have evidence or so these words are distant or, or close or something, maybe if here you want to say stuff about how contextual standards, then maybe stuff about whether the words seem distant is enough to say that the standards are higher because standards may be a function of some epistemic or perceived notion of closeness, uh, yeah. contextual standards. But that's different from epistemic position. Maybe it helps to distinguish the, the two aspects. So maybe you don't have to argue that that the, the uh, unfathomable, unfathomable uh, reason, you know, the skeptical thing is that what is this, is really close or, or really distant. You don't, you don't care about that. It just, just has to be uh, perceived as distant. And it will raise the standoffs. Yeah. yeah, so
3: just as a, I was just trying to, the possible world thing that I bring in is just a way to try to motivate the claim that the skeptical theist hypothesis is going to be sort of more easily and more frequently um, uh, raised than typical um, typical skeptical hypotheses, or at least brain about ones. Um, and so I just made a comparative claim about. Um, this sort of, the world in which God exists and has reasons um, just seems closer, I think most people would agree, than a, than a brain and a bat world. Um, so, I mean, I think both theists and atheists would say, brain, B-I-B world, is, I mean, those are really far out, right? But, but, yeah, maybe I should think more about that.
0: Okay, so we have two follow-ups, and then we still have four questions, and we have about 20 minutes left, so if everyone could just, like, try to keep their questions and answers concise.
4: John? One quick thing. I think it would be good good in general to look at how some of this interacts with quantificational claims that have logical relations to theism but uh, don't, as it were, mention God and see how various suggestions. Like, you know, I see a tragedy and I just say, well, if there had been a good being that foresaw uh, how much would suffering that be and could have prevented this, that being would have, you know, where I might I includes people, and you know, I mean, that doesn't mention God. That's arguably sensitive. I mean, if if the world is as the atheist says it is, it's sensitive. So you know, it'll pass you. There's no there's no immediate mechanism in what you describe for. So are you allowed? Are you willing to concede? Oh, the atheist could know that. And, and, and it's just a suggestion that it's good to look at those right, quantificational yeah. ones and often, you know. The... Yeah, thanks. Uh, Amir, follow up? Yeah,
1: this is a follow up to Julian's point or what I took to be Julianne's point. Um, right, so these are, I think, two completely distinct issues, right? And I tried to tease them out in B and C. So there's this one question about uh, nearness of inscrutable God worlds. Just tied up with the safety kind of thing. And there's a completely distinct question about uh, can you return to the low standards? And on the DeRose picture, the only thing that matters there is salience of the skeptical scenario, the skeptical hypothesis. Um, and salience not understood in this terms of possibility, but just like is there a guy there being annoying and telling you? Mm-hmm. Or are, are you, it's, it's a psychological phenomenon, right? Um, so although, these are different, these the, are different Yeah, he brings
3: possible worlds in, in, in a way to yeah. try to describe, like, so why it is that the skeptical hypothesis um, seems so far fetched, right? Well, in part it's because it's such a distant world. Right, so that
1: explains something about the far fetchedness of yeah, the yeah. thing. That doesn't explain the far fetchedness of the inscrutable God thing. Because that's just necessarily false, right? So, like that, so you don't need that, right? These are two sort of distinct kind of things. I think this is what Julian was pointing out. So if you want to stick with the sort of contextualist response, I would say, you don't need the, this weird kind of thing about a nearby inscrutable god world. If you want the sort of inscrutable god world because sensitivity is a bad condition on knowledge, you want to go with safety, you still don't need that because you have these alternative ways of running the safety argument. So there are options. Yeah. yeah. And you're next, actually. Oh, I don't have a question. Okay. Uh, John. <laughs> Just
4: a little bit on why, why I'm not like Roe being sort of thinking as a matter of principle that atheists couldn't know and why the sceptical theism seems weird. I mean, take a different hypothesis. I'll call it uh, leaf fairies, where I look in, I'd have thought I could look in the garden and I see that the leaves just scattered in an like a uninteresting, arbitrary way. And I'd have thought one could know that they haven't been arranged that way for the aesthetic pleasure of a team of leaf fairies. Okay? <laughs> Leaf-loving fairies. I mean, that seems like the sort of thing you could know by looking in a garden. Then there's this proposition, sceptical leaf fairy, which is, well, you know, if there were a team of sceptical leaf fairies, you know, Quietly arranging, you know, would I know would I be able to discern exactly their aesthetic tastes for (laughs) leaves? And well maybe not. But it it just seems really wild to me that the fact that I wouldn't be able to discern the aesthetics of a team of leaf-loving fairies, were there a team of leaf-loving fairies, that there'd be any obvious route from that to the conclusion that I'm una- I, I'm unable to know that the leaves on my lawn aren't just by looking at them. Um, I mean, that's the frame why, of mind I'm in. Why,
3: why is it that you're not supposed to be able to discern um, leaf-loving fairies
4: since... No, no, no. if that there that were hurts. a team of leaf-loving... I, I'm up for the proposition that I'm calling skeptical leaf fairy, which okay. is the proposition that if there were a team of leaf-loving fairies dis- dis- distributing... Leaves subtly manipulating the wind in the night to, you know, mm-hmm. to arrange leaves for their aesthetic pleasure. Then I wouldn't be in a position to discern exactly what their aesthetic tastes are, and that seems—I don't know—it doesn't seem seems pretty plausible. I mean, yeah,
3: well, I just I want mean, to so think. You, so what? So That's got nothing so to do with anything. <laughs> so, so look, I mean, you might think skeptical theism has. Something more going for, because it's got a little bit more of a story to tell about why it is I mean it doesn't just stipulate that um that that god's reasons are indiscernible. It gives us a reason because God is a kind of being that's omniscient well that's a lot smarter than me, right um, so you're just stipulating that I mean, these that the, i they don't they understand material beings
4: that are manipulated. you know I could tell. I wouldn't really expect to know exactly what their aesthetics were. Immaterial beings manipulating the wind. I mean, <laughs> it seems pretty plausible to me, skeptical leaf fairy. Yeah, so then, I mean, I think, uh, I th- then
3: I think this just becomes a, a typical like, skeptical hypothesis. So, so
4: <laughs> I'm just saying you're telling me that I can't look on the lawn and come to know and say, th- yeah, this, isn't, this wasn't arranged by a team of leaf fairies.
3: I think I think contextualist, I, just, I think a contextualist is is committed to the claim that if someone comes in bringing in like sort of genuinely bringing in this uh, this skeptical hypothesis then maybe the standards are raised or something right um, yeah it's it seems really it seems really implausible leaf fairies just like being a brain of a vat seems really implausible um I mean, isn't that what a contextualist would say? Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I mean, the, the, wrong. Just,
4: I mean there's the contextualist aspect that I, I'm just talking about before we get into cont- just the general mechanics of skeptical theism, just, does, well, doesn't. Say, I mean, like, this is this, echoing a bit of what Amir well, said. It's
3: more like this. Okay, so the the more you fill out the story about the fairies to try to give me a story about why it is that I I can't discern um, Leaf Fairy's aesthetic sensibilities. Um, then, then that's you're getting closer to skeptical theism. Um, the more you're kind of emphasizing the skeptical part of the skeptical leaf fairy hypothesis, then we're just. I, then I wanted to say, okay, well, I'm just, I'm how just, is this different from the typical I'm just reporting them when people hypothesis. look in their garden,
4: they can see that it wasn't uh, put, the, the 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 leaf distribution wasn't put together by a team of leaf fairies, and you seem to be telling me not. Because I think that. a
3: contextualist would just say, because in, forget in, cont- in Just ordinary think of the original Roe-Weikstra
4: dialectic. Yeah. That's all I... am just thinking of the original... The analogue of Weikstra is, is telling me I can't know this. It just looks mad, that's all I'm saying. Just... Jeff? Can, can we to run
5: after this using the quantification move again here? So yeah. it seems like... Maybe, I, I can, I can kind of hear where you're coming from, where you want to say, when, I, when I'm talking about leaf fairies, then suddenly there are skeptical hypotheses which are salient and make a big difference to the knowledge claims I want to make. But what about the claim, um, these leaves were distributed randomly by the wind, or the claim, similar claim, nobody uh, arranged these leaves in accordance with their aesthetic preferences? Um, that's I mean, just kind of mundane sorts of things. It seems like I can know these, but also these entail the falsity of the, the leaf fairy hypothesis.
1: Right,
4: yeah. No, that seems right. Josh, do you have... So, a- yes. sorry. sorry, sorry, I cut him off. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that... Uh, so, ta- uh, just, so the, the analogue of Weikstra would then have to say, Oh, I'm not saying the atheists can't know things that entail a- the- 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 theism's false. That That would be the analogous thing. We'd already be there. Then we could start dinking around with... Can you actually assert the entailment without sho- shoving yourself into a context where you "no" know means something so demanding? But we- we- we'd be a long way. Work- we'd be conceding a lot already. But then, you know.
3: Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Does Christina maybe have
11: some more? What, no, well, well,
7: there, sorry. There was <laughs> was Josh trying a... to follow okay. up first. Sorry. So, so
11: I was just going to follow up first. I was going to say. So let's say. Like, I think Jeff's proposal is is right on the money that we should say like okay, does the the atheist or does anyone know that the leaves are distributed randomly on their lawn? And I think, yeah, in low standards context, you know, like it's the case that, yeah, we know that they're randomly distributed. But then if you were to use that as, I think that if you, so I was, if you were to say ultimately randomly distributed, that perhaps you might, so I think there are theists who think that the, distribution of leaves on the lawn, every I think something like every bird that falls from the sky, God knows about it, or something like that. Like, that's kind of like the kind of claim that a lot of theists would want to say. So they'd want to say, okay, so there's, oh, yeah, that's, that's true. In like random quantifying over like, everyone that's sub, you know, T, but it's, you know, if you want to say, do you know that they're ultimately random, well, no. So that I think that that would be the kind of move, and so that you couldn't actually infer from them being random to there being no T, you'd have to infer from there being ultimately random to there being no T, and then that way you'd get around the kind of back step that you just made. Christina? Yeah,
10: so um, I think the disanalogy with your example, John, and what you should be pushing on, Steve, is the... Is that the original claim that Rose is talking about? It involves the word gratuitous, right? So it's not just their suffering. I think I feel like, sure, I, that would be more like a leaf thing. But gratuitous suffering okay. already has this kind of sense of. And it's, the way he keeps different. defining it, the it is the way he keeps saying ultimate. So there's it, absolutely yeah. no justification, it serves no purpose whatsoever. And I feel like that's, that's where you should be pushing to say like that. It, it's not,
4: these arguments, in the, it's, it, in the end, don't rely on that ideology when you think about it. You could just as well run it via premises like, if there were a good guy, a good being, who uh, foresaw this amount of suffering and could have prevented it, he, he or she would. That's yeah. the premise. That's my, that's my premise. Okay? No mention of gratuitous. That entails there's no God.
10: Does Th- This um, amount of suffering.
4: No, no, no. I, let's just take, like, suppose I, you know, I kick, I, I you know, I dice up Jeff,
6: and then, <laughs> you
4: know, someone says, you know, if a good guy could have stopped that, the good guy would have. But that That's the premise. <laughs> no, I'm sure it is. I mean, really? I'm, I'm
10: yeah.
4: <laughs>
11: No no, uh, no, 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 no,
4: no, no. no, the, the claim is, if if a good guy could have stopped that, <laughs> this
11: particular uh, uh, okay,
4: okay. would. John, you would. That entails there's no, no good. No, I'm saying. No, I'm I'm saying. Theism, yeah.
3: Yeah, some people, so some people are worried that skeptical theism implies a kind of moral skepticism. Um, so there's an interesting literature on on this problem because um, you, you might think even, even if it were. Um, it was sort of always unjustified for one of us to allow you to cut up Jeff or something, that there's some sort of
4: um, different standards in play for... for um, I mean, it what I was, was just pointing out, I don't need the ideology of gratuitousness in the premises. I have premises that entail there's no God, no ideology of gratuitousness at all. But I
10: don't think, yeah, I don't yeah. think that you get that... It- Yeah, so
11: it's like universal quantification. It's like like how many objects are there on this table, and I can't, like, there's blah, blah, blah. And then I can't, or typically people would say you can't infer from how many beers are in the fridge, or how many things are in the fridge, and you can't. There's two, two things in the fridge. Typically, you can't infer the falsity of universal quantification, or universal composition from there's two beers in the fridge, or sort of two things in the fridge. And because if you're using. If you're, if you're Look, if I said that, that if, if right. I said
4: that, and someone pointed out to me there's an invisible guy who, who is really good and pre- could prevent this, and, and he didn't, I think, oh, I was wrong then. It's not like it's got no logical relation to these things. It does. It's not like, oh, I was only talking about you know, chunky, pe- chunky, fleshy people. <laughs>
2: okay, we still have two people that have been waiting very
0: patiently, so I'm going to suggest that we move on, Chris. This is maybe a broader question about the relation of skeptical theism to broader issues of theism, but I'm wondering to what degree the skeptical theist gets to be called theist on your view, especially with relation to the analog of skeptical arguments. So, for instance, like the person who like brings up the skeptical scenario of the brain in the bat, like they're a skeptic. They're not a brain in the batist, right? Um, If they were to be a brain in the batist, they would have to like provide some sort of argumentation for brain in the bat hypothesis. Um, But of course, at the point they're doing that, they're not doing. The skeptical project anymore. They're doing some other project of trying to provide evidence um, for a hypothesis. Uh, I'm wondering. Yeah. So this, how is, this is just to kind of it. a question of the terminology. So I
3: definitely don't think one has to be a theist in order to endorse skeptical theism. Sure. Um, uh, so I think skeptical theism should be pretty plausible to the theists and non-theists, um, uh, at least in a sort of prima facie sort of way. But um, so, like Howard Snyder, for instance, says we need to stop talking about skeptical theism and, and start calling this agnosticism. Well, that seems confusing in some relevant sort of ways. So, I just, and the skeptical kind of stuff is important to my project here. So, I just stuck with the kind of canonical term of skeptical theism. But um, I don't think a skeptical theist has to be a theist, even though maybe, maybe it's the case that most defenders of skeptical theism on board today are, are themselves actually theists.
0: Matt
8: I might just repeat John's earlier um, point but it, you know it seems like in ordinary life we can know things like had I not swerved to the left to avoid the ice and hit the car then things would have been better right? we say I think we know it, it would be shocking if we didn't know those sorts of things and then just pick your favorite case of natural evil and it just seems if we know the sort of things like I know about the car case where I'm responsible. I just think we're going to know that about that case. So the world would have been better had this deer not suffered in this way. There's going to be cases where we know those things. Maybe you're with me so far. And then, had the world been better, uh, then we have premises about God's nature that come in. God's all powerful. He could make, he could prevent things that would have made the world, that did make the world less good than they could have been and uh, he's all-knowing so he knows about this so he would have prevented it if he exists so he doesn't exist so I'm just kind of that's more of a traditional argument from evil rather than Mm -hmm. it appears such and such Mm -hmm. so do you want to question that claim about counterfactual betterness that I don't know that or I'm not reasonable to claim that and I think that's what John was I it. It's the sort of thing. I mean, I
4: think yeah. that's got a less, less straightforward logical connection to theism because, you know... You, you have to say, do some argument after. Yeah, because you but, might think, well, there's, there's a, for every world, there's a better yeah. one, and so, you know, you can, <laughs> there are little models where... Right, you
8: right. Know, there's, it's a, but, if you, but it's not too crazy. He yeah, it could have true. prevented something... It's the that same sort were, of yeah. thing. Where it's, so I'm just curious where your view would block that sort of
3: argument. Yeah, I mean... I would have to think more about um, exactly where I would come down on this. I mean, I think some skeptical theists would would sort of push on that and say, and I mean, again, it would be sort of open to a contextualist treatment because I think some of them would want to say, well, yeah, there's this kind of ordinary sense of better than and which those kinds of claims make a lot of sense and seem true. Um, But when you start making these sort of super high-powered arguments that sort of then argue for the non-existence of God, then you're saying something like, um all things considered, <laughs> um, the world would be a better place yeah, if it I
8: seems so bad. I think I can say that about swerving all things considered, the world would have been better had I not swerved and mm-hmm. to avoid the ice and you know, cause an accident. Yeah, I feel like I know those things but yeah so and then
3: yeah there so I think it's um, Hasker wants to sort of... Run an argument against skeptical theism along these lines because he wants to say, Look, we should be able to say things like, um, all things considered, the, the world would be better. And so, yeah.
0: um. All right, well, let's thank our speaker. Thank you so
4: much for There's no lunch being supplied. Yes. People know better. Yes. All right. oh, really? Okay.